Well, good morning, Encounter Church. It's good to be worshiping together. We're going to finish off the series that we've been working on. This is the fifth week here in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd like to give a quick preview, a sneak peek, if you will, as to what we have coming up. And next week is a four-part series called The Waiting Room. And this series is going to be perfect for you to share with anybody that you know who's... uh, who's stuck in the waiting. And we're going to have four parts to it and look at four different stories out of the Bible that tell us all about when you're being forced to wait, when you refuse to wait, when you're choosing to wait, and then when you are just plain tired of the waiting. So again, if you know somebody who's stuck in the waiting, next week we kick off a series that's going to be perfect for them. But today we finish the series, but God. And remember, in case you're just joining us, I'll I'll tune you in here. Um, What the series is about is taking a look at all these different places in the Bible where those two incredibly powerful words are used, but God. These These are words that when God breaks in, when God intervenes, when God makes the future, nothing like the past. And today we're taking a look at how setbacks happen. Now it's a it's uh, just a reality right now that on Mother's Day, we're all experiencing like setbacks that are happening. Uh, maybe your routine or your traditions have been disrupted right now on Mother's Day. <clears throat> I know, <clears throat> excuse me, in my life, you know, in my world, we have uh, developed like a routine, these traditions and a way to, to honor my wife, the, the mom of my kids. And, and one of those ways is that on Saturday, because Sundays are usually busy for us, but on Saturday, uh, we, we go downtown, we eat at a nice restaurant, and we kind of explore the city with the kids. And that's been a great routine. Except for this year, what that's looked like is takeout and exploring the backyard again. And setbacks, church, it's just a reality. Setbacks happen. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just as a way of doing life together, is just to share in the comments section below is is, is how are you, uh, how are you honoring and, and how are you celebrating the mother figures in your life, especially in the, in the reality that we're all in right now? And maybe we can use a couple ways in our world. So go ahead and leave those comments in the section below. How are you celebrating? How are you honoring the mom, uh, the mother figure in your life? But today too, we're talking about setbacks, not just for Mother's Day, but for all of life, all of the setbacks that we encounter. Right, so like this year, you know, we've just been through it and back with setback after setback. All right, I read one time in an article just uh, last week that that one of the uh, one of the causes of uh, of discouragement right now is that our routines, our daily routines, have been disrupted, and it causes us this disorientation and a sense of of being without place. And I'm like, yeah, that's part of it. There's also a global pandemic. There's also, if you live in West Michigan, uh, snow in mid-May. And then there's apparently murder hornets on the way. It's like, who is playing Jumanji with 2020 as a year? Like, what is going on right now? You know it's the truth is that setbacks happen. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you like a phrase, give you a mantra, give you something to shout in response to it all that recalibrates, reframes, that reimagines whatever setback you have and puts it into the context of God's incredible glory. 
And before I tell you what that line is, I'd like to show you where it is. And so if you'll join me in turning to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis is the last chapter in the first book of the Bible. So as you're, as you're flipping to it and you get to Exodus, you've gone too far. Pretty much anything that isn't Genesis, you've gone too far. At Genesis chapter 50, it's the tail end of the Joseph story. In fact, just, uh, just the final chapter, the final ending of it. And as you find Genesis chapter 50, I want to I let you know that, um, that the Joseph story is 13 chapters long. And just consider this for a minute. Consider this, that, that God gives in, in, the gen, in the book of Genesis, God gives Joseph 13 chapters. He dedicates all of 10 words to the creation of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then sure, we get two chapters that kind of add a little color commentary onto it, but, but 10 words to the creation of the universe in 13 chapters to all of the setbacks and triumphs in the Joseph story. Clearly, God has a lot to say about setbacks. As we get into this story, I want you to, I want you to be aware of a couple of things. The, the first one is that the story of Joseph can simply be summarized in this, that, that Joseph's brothers hated him. The Midianites sold him. Potiphar jailed him. His cellmates forgot about him, but God promoted him. But God promoted him. And the second thing as we get into it is that we have to, we have to know about this doctrine of God. We have to know about an attribute of God. We have to take heart, a characteristic of God. It's a theological term that I like to teach uh, to you because I think it's gonna make all the difference in whatever setback that you face this week. The, The theological term is the providence of God. And the providence of God focuses on the everyday and the ordinary. You see, so often, church, isn't it true? So often that we get, we get caught up and swept up in the miracles of God. We see these incredible stories of God breaking in and God intervening. We hear these stories about lives that are totally and radically transformed, miraculously, supernaturally transformed. And I love those stories. And a lot of you have shared those with the church and shared those with me. And I, I will never get over it. But one thing that what that does is it makes me overlook the providence of God. And the providence of God is the work of God that's at work all the time. The providence of God is how God uses the ordinary to exact extraordinary results. The providence of God works within the natural order to affect supernatural outcomes. The providence of God in your life is incredibly profound and incredibly powerful force to be reckoned with. Okay, so we're going to read about the providence of God in the life of the Joseph story. Remember last week, last week we talked about dysfunctional families and that was a, that was a fun one. I didn't want to land that one on Mother's Day, so you're welcome uh, for that one. But it, it could have been appropriate, I think. But last week we talked about dysfunctional families in the family of Jacob. Well, Jacob's son was Joseph. And so Joseph comes from this like really, really dysfunctional family. His dad, Jacob, had four wives, not like in order, but like at the same time, all kinds of dysfunction. His brothers couldn't stand him, ends up selling him off to those Midianites I mentioned earlier. I mean, there's, there's layers of dysfunction onto this family. <clears throat> but now we're going to drop in at the very, very tail end of the story in Genesis chapter 50. Let's kick it off here in verse 15, where it says that when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph, what if, those are Those are dangerous words. What if 
Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. What if Joseph pays us back? What if our brother deals with us how we dealt with him? What if? Now, if you know part of the story, then you know those are powerful words. That, that phrase when he says, uh, what if he pays us back? The connotations of that word paying us back is, is like paid in full. What if he does exactly to us what we did to him? What, what's going to happen then? Well, you have to know just how guilty their conscience were. You see, in the story by this time, after, after selling him to the Midianites, they didn't want him, so they made a little money off of him. And then he gets falsely accused and then imprisoned. And, and, then he, and then God is starting to like raise him up. We get some signs of some hope and the cellmates uh, get their dreams interpreted correctly by Joseph. And the only thing Joseph asked in return to this guy who's going to get promoted to the personal assistant of Pharaoh in Egypt is, would you not forget about me? That's all I'm asking. When you get your promotion, don't forget about me. And he says, Joseph, I will never forget about you. And then he immediately forgets about him. And years go by with Joseph being left in prison. I mean, this is the, this is the Joseph story. And it was all the, the fault, the results of his, of his brothers. What if Joseph deals us back for all this? Well, in the story, God kept on promoting him. The, the cellmate may have forgotten about him, but God never would forget about him. And God brings him up, brings him all the way up. In fact, there has to be the, the, number, the number two, like the prime minister, you could say, of, of Egypt, the overseer of the most powerful empire in the world. You could say he was one of the most influential, one of the top two wealthiest people, powerful people in the world at the time. In fact, through that gift of dream interpretation, Joseph, actually actually heard a dream from Pharaoh where he had these seven cows, seven fat cows, seven skinny cows. Joseph said, this is what God told me to tell you is that there's going to be seven great years, a plentiful harvest and more than enough food. So let's build granaries and systems to store it all so that when the seven hard lean years come, we can actually open the gates up and we can share with the world. We can save Lives, and that's exactly what happened. And it raises him up all the way to be that head administrator over all of Egypt. Like this incredible story. And now his brothers come asking, come like begging for food and saying, hey, listen, um, and we need something to eat. And, and then Joseph sees these guys. Joseph, his heart just breaks. He weeps. He's a crier, by the way, in the story. Whoever said that uh, grown men don't cry. I mean, they've got another thing coming. Joseph is a crier in the story. He comes up to his brothers and he just bawls his eyes out and says, it's me, it's Joseph. Five chapters previous to this one, Joseph forgave his brother. And now they've got that, they've got that record in their head because their dad just died. What if that nagging voice asks, that evil voice in the back of their head asks, what if? What if Joseph only forgave us because he didn't want to break dad's heart again? What if Joseph only, only relented and, and didn't harm us for everything that we did to him because, because dad was around to intervene? What if now that dad is gone, the hammer from Joseph is finally going to drop? What if? They've got a guilty conscience. And the worst part about a guilty conscience is that a guilty conscience needs no accuser because it's always with them. The voice is always there. The voice is speaking those lies into their heart 
all the time, what if? Charles Spurgeon was a theologian a long time ago, and he says, he says that when it comes to guilty consciences, I'd rather bear any affliction than be burdened by a guilty conscience. You see, guilty consciences are like rust on metal. At first, it just dissolves or just dis- discolors the metal, but then it seeps down deep inside and dissolves it and rots it out from the inside out. And that's what's happening to the brothers. Even though Joseph forgave them, they can't let themselves off the hook because they feel so guilty. What do you do with a guilt like that, that follows and that lies constantly into their hearts? Well, this is what they did to it. In the very next verse, we see in verse 16, so they, so the brothers, so the brothers sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. And this is, this is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask that you forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when the message came to him, Joseph wept. Again, he wept. He's a crier. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. And we are your slaves, they said. I want to take them at their word. I want to believe that Jacob on his deathbed gave this message to his brothers to send to to Joseph and saying, hey, my last dying wish, even though you already forgave him a long time ago while we're still around, even though all of your actions show that you have forgiven them, I ask you one last time to forgive them. I want to take them at their word and believe that their father said that, but but there's just nothing recorded in the story that would make that seem true. In fact, all of Joseph's actions say the opposite, say that he had forgiven them a long time ago. He he settled them in in a fertile, in the best neighborhood in Egypt, just on the east side in this Goshen area, where where they're able to live free and multiply and do all the things they, they wanted to do. He was so kind to them. He was so compassionate to them their whole life, except for they couldn't let themselves off the hook. And so they have to make up this story about, hey, dad on his deathbed, he's going to be our fall guy. You know, we'll throw dad under the bus. Dad wanted this, you know, and they have to use their father's death to try to save their own skins, look after their own selves. It's despicable what they do in the story, but, but Joseph hearing this all again, Weeps. In verse 19, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I love that. Am I in the place of God? And then our key verse for this morning, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and be reassured them. And and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me. In other words, you intended to bring calamity on me. You intended to bring hardship on me. You intended, literally translated, evil for me. You brought me evil, but God but God through his providence, but God was able to turn that evil into something good. God could turn those bad outcomes into good, but God never forgot about me and did something, built something beautiful 
with the evil that they dealt to him. Now, I wanna know something, church. I wanna, I wanna know how, some, how somebody could receive such hardship, how somebody could receive such a struggle, such a suffering, such a setback as he did from his brothers of all people. I wanna know how he could take that and then turn and look at them and say, you know what? You meant evil for me, but I'm gonna extend to you nothing but kindness, nothing but compassion, nothing but forgiveness, nothing but unending love. Church, I wanna know how can you, how can you repay such evil with such good? And I want you to know So whatever somebody deals you in terms of setback this week or your life, you know how to respond. And it comes from these two governing beliefs that Joseph has. He says, first of all, that God is in control. We read that when he says, am I in the place of God? He believes, Joseph believes, God is in control. And so he doesn't have to be. How freeing is that thought that he doesn't have to be in control? Because God is, God's got this. And the second governing belief is that, is that God brings good, God uses bad events for good results. He can and he does. And Joseph believes that the God who is in control also uses bad events for good results. And those two things, I think, combined in Joseph's life compel him to act compassionately, even to those who set him back, even to those who brought him hardship again and again and again. In fact, the whole Joseph story, I think, could be summarized in the New Testament line of of Paul who who knows a thing or two about setbacks, who knows a thing or two about hardships. And Paul, in in writing to this church in Rome, he says, for I know, I know. I don't hope, I don't wish, I don't have my fingers crossed for, for I know that God uses all things, all things everywhere. I love what... um, I love what William Newell said. He says he uses dark things, bright things, happy things, sad things, sweet things, bitter things, times of prosperity and times of adversity for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. He uses all of these things. R.A. Towley said about that verse that these words are like a soft pillow to a tired soul. And maybe if you've just been gripping out of control and some of the setbacks that you experience are just outside of your control and that's what makes it even harder to deal with, maybe just acknowledging, number one, that God is in control helps you just hand it over to God and that you can find a soft pillow to lay your head to rest a weary soul. See, church, sometimes we have this like mistaken idea. We get this mistaken idea in our heads that bad things don't happen to good people. But listen to me, and this is so important. This is like everything. You got to know that your faith, our faith, Christianity is founded on a person 
is founded on the event that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible human being. Setbacks, evil happens. That our faith is actually rooted, established, and grounded on the worst possible thing, a crucifixion, a death and death on a cross happening to the best possible person, Jesus Christ, the son of God. If anybody didn't deserve that to happen, it would be him. It would be that. But God, but God uses bad events, the horrible worst events for the best possible good the salvation of many. Not just that Joseph had this opportunity now to, to feed, to literally feed the world out of the storehouses that he's been putting aside, but no, now Jesus Christ uses that bad, the death on a cross for the salvation, not just for, for a decade or two, but the salvation, the saving of lives for eternity. He won that from such a setback as the cross. And this is what's maybe, I think, the hardest part of all of this. We know that God is in control. And some of you are struggling, but, but, but most of the time you're there. You believe that God uses bad events for good results. But now the hardest part, I think, is that, is that beliefs like that demand a response, don't they? It demands something from us. And so this week, during the setback, that's COVID-19, I ask you to find a way not to waste your pain. Don't waste your pain, church. Don't waste it, not for a second. Because God in his providence is using all things, bright things, dark things, sweet things, bitter things, good things, bad things. He's using it all for the good, for your good, the saving of many lives. He's behind it all. Don't waste your pain. We say it time and time again around here that, that your area of deepest pain may be your area of greatest ministry. Consider what that might be for you to start opening up that area of hurt and share it with somebody else because God is gonna use that for something so good and something so incredible. That's the providence of God. You wanna see something extraordinary? Turn over the ordinary to him. Turn over the pain that you have to him and watch as God turns that evil for good. I think this is what it looks like. Uh, years ago, um, author Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, sat down and interviewed Admiral Jim Stockdale. And uh, Jim Stockdale was, uh, was the highest, highest commissioned officer in prison in Vietnam in the 1970s, it was called the Hanoi Hilton. And Jim Collins sits down with uh, Admiral Stockdale and he just ha has a simple question that he leads with. He goes, how did you make it? How did you survive and even thrive all those years that you were locked away, all those years that you were tortured when so many didn't? We also have to know that that Stockdale is a prisoner. He got word. He found out that they were going to use him as an officer. They were going to use him for the propaganda machine. And so he, instead of being used as propaganda and being put out in print and on TV, he, he, he finds this razor blade and he actually 
mars up his, his face, disfigures his face with the razor blade. He cuts it because he doesn't want to be used for the enemy. How? How did you survive when so many didn't? And this is our line. This is what I want you to keep in mind as you experience your own setback. He says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. I would use that setback as the defining event in my life that I would not trade. Church, setbacks happen. Never lose sight of the end of God's story. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you haven't abandoned us. You haven't left us. God, we experience setbacks, sufferings, and struggles. But God, you will never abandon us. You will never forget about us. God, give us the courage and the faith to hang on to those words that we will never lose sight of the end of this story. Though there's going to be bumps and there's going to be hardship. God, we want to believe. We believe you are in control. And in your providence, you can, you can bring about extraordinary outcomes from our ordinary pain. And so God, as somebody is listening in right now, I ask that you nudge them to, to send us a message, send a prayer along to, to turn over some kind of hurt, some kind of pain over to you, Jesus. To never lose sight of the end of what you are doing. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name, the God who turns evil for your amazing glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.